Hello, everybody. My name is Andrew Gamison, and I want to welcome you to this week's edition of the Speaking for Him podcast. We are finishing up our Myths of Modern Christianity subseries of the Back to Basics. Remember, we started the Back to Basics, I think, this past summer with the discussion of the five solas of the Reformation. And basically what these declarations were was that the Reformers, such as Martin Luther, went back to the Word of God and they said, these are the fundamental truths that the Word of God tells us about the Christian faith. And so, rather than just going by what our religious leaders tell us, they said, we looked into the Bible for ourselves and this is what we found to be true. And I feel like this discussion of the myths of modern Christianity is much the same way. Um, The devil likes to take truth and to distort it. And so as we've gone through this series, we've noticed a few fundamental things. Most of these myths, first of all, they have a kernel of truth. And second of all, the primary problem with each of them is they take the focus off of God who is the one in whom we live and move and have our being, and place it on ourselves, when the reality is that we can of ourselves do nothing. So today we're digging into this myth about whether you can or should live your best life now. Now, Joel Osteen wrote a book with this title, and so we're going to look at that and take a deep dive and see whether it is possible to live your best life now, and more importantly, if it should even be a pursuit of the believer. So stay tuned for that, but first let's talk about what is going on. Today I start in Texas, where we get an update for the Texas abortion ban legal battle. It's a high-stakes day at the Supreme Court when it comes to access to abortion. Justices heard two challenges to the Texas abortion law, which bars most abortions in the state after six weeks of pregnancy. ABC's Devin Dwyer now in, well, actually, he was inside uh, the court. He's now outside to join us with all the highlights of today's arguments. What do you think, Devin? What stands out? Hey, Kira, what a dramatic day at the Supreme Court. I mean, this is one of the most consequential weeks here in years, uh, and as you say, two major cases on abortion rights out of Texas today. i got to tell you, the issue of abortion itself, access to abortion, whether it's a fundamental right, that wasn't at issue today. It was really the enforcement mechanism, uh, the novel one that we have talked about that Texas uses to uh, enforce its ban on abortions after six weeks. Uh, that took center stage today, and uh, it comes two months to the day after that law took effect. Dramatic scenes uh, inside cure for more than... Just about three hours today, the justices heard arguments. And at the end of the day, the bottom line, they voiced a majority of justices, voiced skepticism with that enforcement mechanism, that one that deputizes everyday citizens in Texas to bring those lawsuits against anyone who aids or abets uh, an unlawful abortion. Uh, Today, many of the justices, Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Barrett, signaled they're not quite comfortable with that arrangement that blocks from federal court review uh, this uh, what they saw as a deprivation of federal rights. So we could see uh, some sort of action there, but it was unclear, Kira, what sorts of steps they will take next. Um, They've expedited this case, but no timeline for when they'll decide. 
All right, so who are the key justices to, to watch here? And what do you think the takeaways were from their specific lines of questioning today? Yeah, well, Justice Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett, the two newest members of the Supreme Court, uh, Kira, you'll remember, voted with the majority to allow the Texas law to take effect. Uh, but today, both of them raised some serious concerns about the law. They suggested uh, that perhaps it was improper for Texas to design it in such a way that federal courts couldn't actually look at it. Uh, that's what it was designed to do. And so those are the two justices we're going to be keeping a very close eye on. One of the big questions they've had to answer, Kira, is who can the Supreme Court, who can any federal court target uh, with action, with an injunction, say? Uh, because of the way this is designed, Texas has made it very crafty about, um, you know, any individual can bring a case. So, it, you know, you can't just enjoin the law. You can't join the entire public. So who do you target? Uh, and today, both of them suggested maybe it's the court clerks in the state of Texas who can be blocked from accepting to the docket in that state these, uh, these cases under SB8. So we'll see where they go. Uh, but out here, all quiet right now, Kira. It was not quiet earlier today, and we heard from uh, voices on both sides of this debate as the case was going on. Take a listen. We lose 2,363 lives on average every single day in America. And what we see in Texas now is that the abortion rate has been cut in half. Uh, we want to see that trend continue. Uh, and if, if the court decides not to uphold the Texas law, then it would be extremely detrimental to those lives. We're pleased, obviously, uh, several of the justices had concerns about the broad implications if a state is allowed to um, nullify a federal right through a scheme like Texas SB 8. And so we, we hope to have relief uh, from this court finally after this law has been in effect for two months now, depriving patients across the state from being able to exercise a fundamental right that's been recognized by this court. Um, we, it is long past time for this uh, statute to be blocked, for the enforcement to be blocked, and uh, to restore services across the state. Okay, as we unpack this issue, I have three observations I want to make. First of all, they mentioned in this news story that the fundamental issue that, that, that was in discussion this week when they went to the court was not on the fundamental right of abortion. Uh, because they believe that's been established by Roe versus Wade. But the the fight was about whether people should be given the power to bring lawsuits against other people if they violate the law. Now, a couple of things on this. You basically have two choices with a law, right? You have the choice of having judges vote on the constitutionality or more literally fight about the constitutionality of certain laws. And that's what we've seen throughout the years, specifically with pro-life laws or other laws of great moral consequence. Different courts will issue injunctions and then another court will issue a stay on an injunction and another court will. And it seems like they flip back and forth. So basically what the legislature of Texas was trying to do by incorporating this bill, was saying we don't want that kind of seesawing back and forth to happen with this legislation. 
So let's give the power to the people. Now, a couple of things on that is just straight out of, of the gate. If you're going to ask me whether the people should have the power or whether the judges should have the power, I'm going to say the people every time. We are a nation for the people of the people and by the people. Not, as so many seem to believe, for the judges of the judges and by the judges. We have so much that happens in our country by judicial fiat. We are supposed to have three separate co-equal branches of government that balance each other out. And we need to make sure that we maintain that. So I think that if you're going to err on one side or the other, you need to err on the side of the people. Second of all, let's get one thing straight. It wouldn't matter what the mechanism was that they had for enforcement of this law, pro-abortion people would still fight it on the basis that they believe that abortion is a fundamental right. Which leads me to my next question. Why is it that the person in this news story who is speaking on behalf of the pro-abortion lobby says that Senate Bill 8, which is the bill in question, is a scheme, whereas the Supreme Court's decision of Roe versus Wade is a federal right. So basically what he's saying is that the Supreme Court can establish a federal right but the House and the Senate and the governor of Texas should not be able to establish a right within their state. Quite frankly, I think this gentleman needs to go back to constitutional law class. The reality is that we have plenty of ways in America to make a law. One is to start a petition drive to get something on the ballot. If the ballot initiative gets enough votes, it becomes law. Two, the federal or state legislatures craft and vote on legislation, which is then signed or vetoed by the president or the governor of a state. Three, a constitutional amendment is proposed and then is voted on by the states. If a convention is called and two-thirds of the states agree, the constitution is is amended. And... Roe versus Wade, which is the statute by which this federal right has been decided, is none of these things. Even Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, this is bad law. So I, I think we need to make sure that we know the difference between a scheme and a law. And I think that if you're going to use the word scheme... The thing that is far more in the scheme category is, in fact, Roe versus Wade. Even President Biden admitted as much when he said during his campaign that he wanted it codified into law. Why would it need to be codified into law if it was good the way it was? The next story that I want to talk about is in relation to the elections that took place this week. I thought this was an interesting story about refunding police. 
It's Election Day 2021, and the future of law enforcement also on the ballot today in certain localities. Policing measures on the top of voters' minds in major cities as they see a surge in violent crimes amid a push to defund the police that we've seen over the last year. So what can we expect? Fox News contributor and civil rights attorney Leo Terrell joins us from Los Angeles. Hey, Leo, good morning. Hi, hi, Steve. How are you? I'm doing okay. Okay, so in Minneapolis, they're consider- considering question two on the ballot. That would replace the police department with the new public safety department, which is different. They would not send cops out when there are emergencies, uh, per se, uh, every time. And in Austin, Texas, Proposition A would hire more cops. Currently, they've got 1.6 cops per thousand residents, they would up that to two cops per thousand. So in other words, after the big move last year to defund, now essentially they're talking about refunding. They're trying to, Steve, and you know what? They have tried to refund all these police departments, but Minneapolis and Austin are holdouts. Minneapolis wants to change the whole concept. And let me be very clear. They were forced, these Democratic cities were forced to refund the police. It is political suicide if they come out, Steve. Have you heard any of these Democratic leaders say, I want more police officers, I want more, more, more money for police? They can't say it because it's political suicide. So you're fighting in Minneapolis and in Austin to restore funding. Two officers per 1,000 people in Austin. They want to change the whole concept of police in Minneapolis. What I'm telling you is that the Democrats do not really support the police. They were compelled to do so because of all of this crime in the nation. Right. Meanwhile, down in Atlanta, the current mayor, uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms, is not running for re-election, and there are a number of people who are uh, running to get that seat, and they're they're talking about fighting crime. And what's interesting is the Buckhead neighborhood of Atlanta, given the fact that the the crime rate is soaring, they're talking about seeding from the city because it's so bad. And that's the point, Steve. Democrats are now, this this term reimagining. Again, they were compelled. Buckhead wants to leave Atlanta. Why? Because throughout the entire country, Crime has spiked. Murders have gone up. And I'm sick and tired of them using George Floyd as a basis for trying to cut the police or reimagine police department. Buckhead is a perfect example. Crime is still rampant in Atlanta. And Steve, have you noticed every city we've talked about are Democratic cities? Because again, if you're a Democratic politician, you cannot support the police in the open. And meanwhile, on the West Coast where you are in Seattle, uh, the mayor there, Jenny oh. Duncan, uh, is is getting uh, a lot of heat because uh, Jenny Durkin, that is to say, because she's offering incentives for cops to hire them back. And I think it, to the tune of $25,000 a person if they will rejoin. But the union say, hey, it's too little too late. I just want to say about this issue, first of all, that I believe that the majority of police officers are doing their best to help to guarantee our public safety and they should be respected and they should be supported. I back the blue. Obviously, if someone is a corrupt police officer and they commit a crime, they should be prosecuted through all this police brutality um, that has occurred. A lot of times people portray these criminals as innocent parties when in fact 
the police were left with no other choice but to injure them or in some cases kill them for the safety of others. And it amazes me, specifically in the case of Jacob Blake, who was literally trying to terrorize someone who had a restraining order against him and to abscond with children and threaten police officers with a gun that he is somehow a hero for having survived police brutality. And that is unacceptable. And so the reaction to that and similar events has been, let's defund the police. Well, now they have a problem of escalating crime. So what do you do when you defund the police and crime escalates? Then you have to refund the police because you have to get more police officers in. So I think this is an example of what happens when you think that you can make a decision in a bubble. People think that the police are the problem, so if you reduce the police, the problems will cease. But the reality is that the job of a police officer is to preserve law and order in our society. And... Friends, we need law and order in our society. There's no way for our society to be a good one without law and order. The final thing that I want to talk about today is just a little clip from the Paula Ferris Faith and Calling podcast. I have played a clip from Paula Ferris before, but this clip refers to how failure actually helped Joel and Mariah Smallbone. Joel is of freaking country. Mariah is his wife. How failure actually helped her music career rather than hindered it and brought them together. I'm going to explain Ryan. You know Ryan. <laughs> so Mariah does this, the American Idol thing. She makes it all the way through the seventh round. She stands there and, and they basically, you know, the long short of it is, hey, we just don't think you're ready. You need to go you know, discover yourself a bit more, get a bit more sexy, come back. So she steps out and a guy named Ryan throws a mic in her face and says, Hey, Mariah, you know, you're just stepping out of this. Um, how do you, how do you feel about their comments? Uh, said something to the effect of, you know, well, this is something just a stance of mine. And if they didn't think it lined up with their show, then it was fine. Well, there's someone in the room with Ryan in the waiting room. Here's this. And it sticks with them. It's like this woman has had this stance and she just got, you know, got sort of let down because of her stance. Um, and here's this, calls their friend in Nashville and said, I have this young lady who's beautiful and really talented. You need to bring them to Nashville to mm. meet with folks. So this woman, Wendy Green, brings her to Nashville to my brother's wedding where we meet she meets a bunch of record labels and managers that week. Mm. She signs a record deal. She signs a management deal. And so the, the, the breadcrumb here is this. If it weren't for even her stance mm. in that moment and the rejection, because anyone could have kind of done Monday morning quarterback and been like, I should have just, I should have kept it to myself. Mm. 
but we wouldn't literally be here having this conversation. I really like that clip because it reminds me that even things that I think of as devastating and as failures can set me up for the next thing that God has in mind for me. And that really is a pattern that we see in all of life. I took a class in college that was based on a John Maxwell book called Failing Forward. And the idea was that in order to be a success, you have to be willing to fail. People that do not have failures in their life often also do not accomplish great things. If you look at history, you will find a lot of failures among the successes in life. Thomas Edison tried upwards of a thousand or more different ways to do the light bulb before he settled on one that was a success. Abraham Lincoln had business failures and election failures before he was elected to the presidency and became one of the greatest presidents we've ever known. Um, Joseph in the Bible had the failure of being sold as a slave and being thrown in prison before he was made the governor of Egypt. All of these people have one thing in common, and that is that failure drove them to success. And I just really like that clip about how failure drove Joel and Mariah together and also drove Mariah to success. You know, she, I'm sure at that on that day was thinking that American Idol would be the pinnacle of success and she really wanted it. Um, and then when she was cut, her conversation with Ryan Seacrest led her to signing with the people that she needed to sign with to become successful in music. Um, so she had no clue that that failure would lead to the success that it did. Most importantly, leading her to her husband, Joel. So that just encouraged me. I hope it encourages you to seek God and to be willing to fail forward. We have reached the main segment of our show, and so I'm going to get our discussion started with our quote of the day. Again, our topic for the main segment of our show is the topic that there's a myth out there that you can or even should pursue your best life now. Joe Olstein has a book by that name, and he just encourages people to grab life by the horns and to basically manifest good things in your life so that you can live your best life now. And of course, the most telling thing to me is he doesn't restrict this to Christians. He says anybody can incorporate and embrace these principles. So let's look at what the Bible truly says about this, and we'll start with our quote of the day. This is Paul. And he says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, not on things of the earth. And that is Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2. So Paul is saying here 
that if you are redeemed, if you have come to know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, that you need to have an upward focus. You need to look up and be focused on heavenly things, not on earthly things. You've heard the saying, he's too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. And I like to repeat the saying a little backwards and say, you must be heavenly minded to be earthly good. And I think it's so important for us to always have an upward focus. One of the things that's common among all of these myths that we've talked about is that the myths themselves focus on us, whereas the truth, that is the polar opposite of these myths, are focused on God. So I think that's a that's a big tell for us to remember is that if if it's biblical truth, it will focus on our response to God rather than our response to ourself. So there's a couple different aspects about life that I want to go over with you today. And I think they put some of this in perspective. The first is that life is brief. James four thirteen to 15 says, Go to now you that say, Today or tomorrow we will go into a, such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanish away. For that you ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. And James has a great perspective because he's not saying don't live life. He's not saying that you should just stop doing whatever it is you're doing. But he's saying to have the focus on God. To say, I don't know the future, God does, but Lord willing, I'm going to do this. And so I have adopted the habit of when somebody asks me if I'm going to do something or be in a particular place, I will often say, Lord willing. Or to add a little humor to the situation, Lord willing and the creek don't rise. I know my grandpa used to say that often. But the idea being, I intend to do this, but all of it is subject to the Lord's will. Case in point. I expected to finish out the school year with the potter's house. But God had another plan, and so I'm home working on expanding the vision of my ministry. And I'm excited about the things God is doing, and I'm excited about uh, the time that I've had to invest in ministry projects. But it's not without its frustrations that I wasn't able to, to complete the year at the Potter's House. If you had asked me in the summer, I would have told you that I was going to. So all that to say, you just don't know what the future holds. But a good way to address certain things that you are attempting to do is just to say, if the Lord is willing, I am going to do that. 
the next thing that I want to mention is that suffering is a part of this life. A big component of the modern uh, kind of emergent or humanistic um, Christian movement is this idea that we can avoid suffering, that God doesn't want us to suffer, that suffering is a bad thing. But Paul recognizes that suffering is power for the course because he says in Romans 8.18, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And so what he's saying here is you will have suffering on this earth, but the suffering will be worth it because eventually there's going to be glory revealed in us. He would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that this mortal shall put on immortality and this corruptible will put on incorruption. We will be perfected one day. That is so important for us to realize. And then death is guaranteed to all of us. There's a statistic that Ray Comfort often quotes when he speaks, and he says, statistics prove that one out of one people dies. Now, there's biblical evidence that there's coming a time when the church will be taken up from the earth, and there will be people alive when that happens. So the one exception to this is that if you are alive, when Jesus comes back, you may be able to go to heaven without experiencing death. But for the most part, we have a one out of one chance of experiencing death. Hebrews 9.27 says, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. So there is a judgment coming after death. The question that we have to ask ourselves is, are we going to be judged on our own merit? which would condemn us to hell because we don't have any merit, or are we going to be judged on Jesus' merit because he's perfect and he offers his protection to us? It's a, the Bible says in Second Corinthians that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I choose to be judged on Jesus' merit because I know that I have none. Next, we are citizens of heaven. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 3.20 Now I want to talk about this verse a little bit because some people construe it as you shouldn't be involved in the political process here on earth. And I have a couple fundamental problems with that. First of all, Paul claims his Roman citizenship to be treated properly when he is taken prisoner. And he even challenges the guard because he said, you probably paid for your Roman citizenship, but I was born a Roman. So Paul, this one that is articulating that our primary citizenship is in heaven, is not saying that it's wrong to exercise the rights of your citizenship. I think it's important for us to realize that most of these epistles if not all of them, were written to people that were under dictatorships. And so we, as people that are in a democratic republic who have the opportunity to vote for people who want to change from what we have uh, and also have the right to protest as part of our constitutional rights, 
should do that when things go against the scripture and our convictions. The reality is, too, folks, that every political issue is a moral issue. So to say, oh, that's political, I'm not going to touch it because all I care about is moral issues, that's a wrong approach. Because if you can name me a political issue that does not have a moral underpinning, I would be very surprised. If you don't want to be involved in politics and you want to keep your head in the sand, there are plenty of countries that you can go to where it doesn't matter if you're political because you have no say whatsoever anyway. Just something to keep in mind. But as we look at this verse, Paul is saying we shouldn't be thinking about accumulating things here on earth because our primary citizenship is in heaven. We need to be thinking heavenward. We need to be thinking about, as the proverb says it, the hereafter. And if we do that, we will be well served. And then the final thing that I want to bring up is God is preparing something big for us. This is once again Paul. Paul had a lot of wisdom, didn't he? It says, But as it is written, I had not seen, nor ear heard, nor hath entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9. In this passage, Paul is talking about what we have to look forward to in eternity. There is some evidence that perhaps Paul died, went to heaven, and was sent back by God because his work was not yet complete. He was stoned and left for dead outside the city, and he would later write in one of his epistles, I know a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. And then he would go on to talk in brief about experience in heaven, although he would say largely he couldn't speak of it. And he says here in this passage that nothing your eye has seen, nothing your ear has heard, nothing that's even entered your heart can come close to that which God has prepared for you if you love him. That's amazing. Paul also says the things which are seen are temporal but the things which are not seen are eternal. I think so often we look at life's end and life's rewards through a finite lens that can't really grasp what we have waiting for us. John MacArthur said in a video clip about Joel Osteen's book, Your Best Life Now, he said, if, if your focus is on your life now, then this will be your best life. Because you will not want to go into the afterlife. Because we need to be prepared for the next life. Because there's only two choices of where to go when we die, either heaven or hell. My appeal to you today, brothers and sisters, is to choose heaven. 
And the way you do that is through believing in Jesus Christ, for he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't say, I am one option among many. He said, I am the option. I am the only way. As we wrap up, I just want to review a little bit. So we we talked today about how life is brief. So if we focus on temporal things that we can't bring with us, that's not very good because you will never see a hearse following a U-Haul. Instead, we need to do things according to the Lord's will. We talked about how suffering is a part of life. You know, it just is. Paul was an expert about this because he had a thorn in the flesh. and He asked God to take it away, and God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. To the point that Paul said later, I will glory in my infirmities. The next thing we discussed is that death is guaranteed to all of us. As far as the physical realm, we are all mortals. None of us will live forever. And if you've ever read the book Tuck Everlasting, that gives you a good example of why you would not want to live forever in this world. In brief, Tuck Everlasting is a story about a family that drank from a magic spring and so they did not age. And they were immortal. But every time they met people, those people died off and left them. And they were miserable because of it. Incidentally, that's why God guarded the tree of life after the, the Adam and Eve ate the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because if Adam and Eve had eaten of the tree of life, then they would have been doomed to a miserable eternal life of sin. And God knew that couldn't happen. Death is guaranteed to us all. We need to be prepared because after this is the judgment, either a judgment taken for us by Jesus or a judgment where we will be judged out of our own merit. We are citizens of heaven. So, well, the things of earth do matter as pertains to living in society. The things of heaven matter more. And so when our leaders put up edicts that are in opposition to the Bible, we can say, no, we will not do that because God's way is the best. As Peter and John said, whether it is right to follow you or not, you can judge, but we can only do talk about those things that we've seen or heard. And so they were put in jail and commanded not to speak in the name of Jesus, but they kept right on doing so because it was the right thing to do. And they were focused on what God had given them to do. They had an upward focus, God, not self. And then finally, God is preparing something big for us. It can be difficult, can it not, to realize that what we have here on earth is not the best there is. 
And at the same time, what a relief that is, because if here on Earth was the best there is, then I would be pretty miserable. Because I'm in a crippled body that often has physical pain, and winter is really difficult for me to get through, and we're on the cusp of that right now. But because I know that this life is not all there is, I can cling to God and know that his plan is best and know that he will give me strength for every day of this life. So I hope the things that we've talked about today give you cause for excitement and joy and I hope encouragement. I would encourage you to share this with family and friends. That's how more people find out about the Speaking for Him podcast. With that being said, I will simply say, have a great week and keep serving the best of masters. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Your host has been Andrew Gomison, founder of Speaking for Him. For more information on today's show and to leave us comments and voicemails, visit speakingforhim.blogspot.com. You can find Andrew's ministry at speakingforhim.com. That's speaking, the number four, H-I-M. You can also interact with us at facebook.com slash speakingforhim and on Twitter at speakingforhim. And when you look for us on iTunes and Stitcher, let us know what you think of the podcast by leaving a rating and review.